This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're in the final paragraph of chapter 5, in a section commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. We've spent several weeks now learning how the Pharisees taught people to deal with conflict. We've taken the time because conflict is such a large part of our experience. We come into personal conflict pretty much every day of our lives. So Christians are routinely faced with the choice to respond like the rest of humanity does when faced with conflict, or to live up to a higher standard, the one God requires. Given our sinful nature, it's not as easy as it might seem. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. For now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. Again, let me remind you, that's the reason why these words are so challenging. Not because they're hard to understand, because they're plain and clear and simple, but they confront our nature. Now, here's the catch on this. Some Christians, quote-unquote, will reject the standard, church. And we need to be aware of that. And they reject the standard and they opt for their own. And when they do this, they're telling God, I have a better plan. You know nothing about relationships. Therefore, I need to add my own wisdom to your deficient, obviously, plan. Can you think of anything more blasphemous than this, church? When we apply a different standard. No, we would never say that to God. We would never be as direct to God as I'm quoting right now. But that's the attitude. And as a result, people who do this, to use biblical language, they suffer shipwreck of their faith. According to 1 Timothy 1, verse 19, And church, I have seen this over and over and over again. People will reject God's standard for conflict resolution. They will opt for their own. And what happens is, a couple of months down the road, they find themselves in a situation of faith crisis because they have made shipwreck of their faith. And some of them leave the church and haven't come back just to demonstrate that they were really never of us, the Bible says. I, I, I know some of these folks. They are bitter. They're filled with resentment and self-pity, and they wallow in their self-righteousness, and nobody's good enough for them, and uh, they create a parallel reality, and in that reality, they are victims of everybody else, rather than to understand that they are perpetrators, according to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, if you hate in your heart, you are a murderer. If you look at someone with uh, lust in your heart, you are an adulterer at heart, and therefore you need repentance. So that's the catch, and that's why this is so challenging. The other point, too, is that, my friends, people will reject you when you live by this standard. But listen, remember the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, verse 11, this one specifically. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. See, if people are going to abandon you because of Christ, you are blessed. If people are going to walk away from you and write you off as an enemy because you're trying to apply biblical standard, my friend, you are blessed beyond your ability to compute. I don't like losing friends, but I'd rather stay with the Word of God. And that's, that should be our attitude. And in verse 44 here, Jesus presents another imperative verb, which means it's not an option. It's a command. 
we are commanded to pray for people who persecute us. Now, persecution here is different for us than it is for our friends and brothers in Christ in China, for example. But yet, we, we still have people who oppose us, people who want nothing more than to close our doors forever, to tell us how bad we are, and then to shame us by writing articles about Christianity and so forth. But we are to pray for them, and, and Jesus even demonstrates that. In Luke 23, verse 34, when he interceded on behalf of his executioners. Remember this. When he was being nailed to the cross, it says, Father, lay not their guilt on their account. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, listen to uh, or look at verse 44 with me again. By the way, circle the two words, so that. Let's do that exercise again. Whenever you see those two words in Scripture, you should write a note in the margin of your Bible to say purpose. That indicates purpose. So what we see here, verse 45, that starts with the two words, so that. We need to understand that that's the purpose for which Jesus is giving his argument here. And once again, in order to understand these next words, we need to bring the broader context of Scripture so that we don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying. Because if we do this, we'll be overlooking the context and we will miss by miles what Jesus is saying. For example, it says this, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, if you take this and read it casually without attention to the context, you will say, oh, so becoming a child of God is conditioned upon compliance to this command and nothing's further from the truth. Why? Because the broader context of Scripture tells us otherwise. For example, John 13, verse 35 says this. I'm sorry, go back to John 1, 12. John 1, 12, the prologue of the gospel. John says this, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. So we know that becoming a son or a daughter of God doesn't come by performance. It happens by grace through faith for people who believe in Christ and exercise saving faith. Now, when we do this, we become children of God. So what does Christ mean here then when he says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven? Now, he's talking about nobility of character. Why? Because God is the highest being there is. He is the most noble with the, the, the most integrity. He's the creator of all of these virtues. And what Christ is saying here, when you do this, you're imitating your Father. You resemble your Father when you do this. Why? Because you're not being selective in the way you love. You love your persecutors as well as your friends. And God the Father does the same thing. He allows people to enjoy sunshine and to enjoy rain. And He doesn't select sunshine and rain to the righteous people only. That's what Jesus is saying here. He allows even the most evil people in the world to enjoy the benefit of his creation. So we are to imitate that. And that's the Bible verse I was quoting before. John 13 verse 35 says this, Jesus Christ says, by this all men we know that you are my disciples. If you have what church? Love for one another. So when we love church, we are resembling our Father who is in heaven. And Jesus clarifies this by invoking the example from the Father and mentioning the idea of common grace. That's what he says here. He's talking about God's non-salvific love or non-saving love, sometimes referred to as common grace, to the fact that the people enjoy the benefit of God's creation. So likewise, what we need to do as subjects of the kingdom of heaven, children of God, we should never limit our love to people who look like us, sound like us, vote like us, and even believe like us. Now let's bring this closer to home here, to our reality. When you fail to demonstrate Christ-like love to the rioter, to the looter, to the murderer, to the politician who wants to destroy your faith and infringe upon your rights, to the activist who wants you to embrace his unbiblical view of the family. When we fail to demonstrate Christ-like love to these folks, we are acting like sons of disobedience 
according to Ephesians 2, verse 2, not as sons and daughters of God. And the problem is, we were sons of disobedience before we came to Christ, were we not? Ephesians 2 and 2 says this, you were sons of disobedience. That's how sons of disobedience act. They limit their love to people who look like them. They limit their love to people who don't measure up to their own standard. We don't do that. We go by this standard right here because we are children of God. And the Bible is very clear about this. So we are to be known for our love. And by the way, we need to clarify something here, church. Loving does not mean agreeing with, okay? We know that. And certainly doesn't mean compromising truth. I'd rather be divided by truth than united in error. I've said this before many times. Now, loving does not mean you don't speak the truth. In fact, you do. You, I, I can't love you unless I speak the truth to you. I can't think of greater love than to lay down my life to you. That's what Jesus says. And by the way, I can't think also of a greater love than to tell you your lifestyle will cause the wrath of God. There's nothing more loving than that. So we can summarize verses 44 through 45 like this, Jesus clarifies that subjects of the kingdom of heaven should not limit their love to people who are lovable by human standards or people who you consider to be lovable because every human being is an image bearer, including those who are hostile to the Christian faith. They have inherent dignity because they are image bearers of God and must receive our love. And again, that love doesn't mean approval of lifestyle, quite the opposite. If I really love you, I must warn you that the wrath of God abides on you unless you come to faith in Jesus Christ. So after identifying the assumption and offering the correction, Jesus now presents the reason in verses 46 through 47. That's the reason for the command, for the clarification that he gives. So he explains why he's saying all of this. Even though he has the authority to fulfill the law and the prophets, he says, by the way, that's the reason why people were impressed with his teaching. He's not quoting any rabbi. He is appealing to his own authority because he is the son of God. And in explaining the reason, he uses four rhetorical questions. Now, you might want to underline them here, starting in verse 46, the rhetorical questions. That's, they're easy to identify because you'll see the question mark there on your text. They are literary devices. They are meant to produce an impact on your heart when you read it. Okay, so the first one challenges his audience's self-centered idea that love should be limited to affinity groups. That's what he's saying. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? He's saying if that's your parameter, if that's your standard, which, by the way, is substandard, your only reward is the mutual love from your closed group. That's what he's saying. But just say, Pastor, I'm okay with that. Some of you may be thinking, I'm okay with that. I don't, I don't need to risk loving my persecutors and the people who hate me and risk not being loved back or be, risk being perceived as weak. Because by the way, church, the world does perceive humility, lowliness, and forgiveness as weakness. That's the world's standard. Nothing can be further from the truth. The Bible says those things are nobility of character. You are of noble character, of excellent character when you forgive, when you are humble, when you humble yourself and wash dirty feet, when you place yourself under the category of undeserving of anything. That's nobility of character because that's Christ-likeness. So the world will perceive you as weak when you follow that standard. And people who don't appreciate the standard of God for conflict resolution might consider you weak and they might despise you for that. But the point is this, church, whose opinion are you after? Whose approval do you seek? See, I'd rather obey God and be rewarded by him than to play it safe and love only those who love me back. In fact, Jesus argues that if you do this, you are no different than the worst people in your society. That's what he's saying here. If you do this, you are no better than the tax collectors, which leads us to the second question. He says, verse 46, 
what reward do you have? And then he follows that up with, do not even the tax collectors do the same? Now, the tax collectors, you need to understand, in Jewish culture, were despised people because they were Jews, considered traitors, and unclean also because of their association with Gentiles. The Jews considered them traitors because they charged taxes on behalf of Rome for a profit, and they charged their own people. They were hired by the state to do that. And Matthew, the author of the Gospel of Matthew here, was a tax collector. You may remember him by the name of Levi. And that's in Matthew 9, verse 9. But according to Jesus, even these guys love their own kind. These guys love their tax collector country club. They had to because they were hated by the Jews. But Christ's purpose in using them as an example goes a step further than utilizing them as simply as a, as a model to be avoided. It stirred up emotions and exposes his listeners' resentment and hatred towards tax collectors. See, it's not a coincidence that he says, love your enemies. And a couple of sentences later, he says, well, remember the tax collectors. So what Jesus is doing here, he exposes the wound in order to heal it. And that's what he does, friends. So if the Word of God is cutting you right now and exposing the wound, it's for your own benefit because the great physician here does that in order to heal the wound. It hurts in the beginning, yes, because it confronts our reality, but when you allow the Word of God to cleanse you and, and to do the work in your heart, you will be better at the end because you will be more Christ-like. So in the immediate context, Jesus therefore implies that his Jewish audience needed to consider extending love to these extortionists. You see, it would be the same thing as Jesus telling us right now, you are to extend love to the looters, to the rioters, to people who burned down your building, to people who are calling for your resignation, the people who are toppling down statues. You are to love them as well, just like you love yourself. Now, can you hear some of the listeners say here at this point, Jesus, really, are you comparing me with tax collectors? And that's precisely his point. He is. And he's saying this. He chose the scum of the earth in the minds of the audience to say this. You are just like them because you only love the people who love you. That's the purpose of that second rhetorical question. Do not the tax collectors do the same? Now listen to the third one in the following verse. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? So that's another rhetorical question. He doesn't really need an answer. It's a literary device. And he clarifies by doing this that God expects subjects of the kingdom of heaven to operate by a higher standard. A higher standard than everybody else. Why? Because we're different than everybody else. And he uses a common form of courtesy to make a point. Here, here's his thought process. A greeting merely acknowledges someone's presence. You don't have to love anybody to do that. You can hate someone and greet them anyway. It doesn't meet a particular need and doesn't require excellence of character. In fact, I have been hypocritically greeted many times. And so have you. Here's how. If you, like me, have been written off as an enemy, occasionally you will bump into your critic. And that's, that's the funniest thing ever. It happens to me every once in a while, somebody who I know is criticizing the church, is criticizing me behind my back. I think God does it on purpose. I run into them at the store or at the bank, and they avoid eye contact by all means. But when that's unavoidable, here comes the fake pleasantries or the awkward wave. And here's the thought process behind that rationale. Well, God, at least I didn't give him a piece of my mind. I didn't pull the trigger. I didn't stick the knife in his heart. I was just politely cold. No. You know what Jesus' opinion about this is? Verse 47, I'm not impressed. 
Jesus says, I'm not impressed. What else are you doing than everybody else does? I'm not impressed. You are called by a higher standard to live by a higher standard. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that standard doesn't change just by simply declaring your neighbor to be an enemy. So see, people think, well, I'm required to love my neighbor. But if I just declare that person to be my enemy, I'm exempt from loving them. Jesus says, no, that's not true because you're supposed to love even the people who you hate. Even the people who you have a grudge against, you're supposed to love them. You're supposed to seek his highest good. You're supposed to speak well of her. You're supposed to die for her rights. You're supposed to sacrifice for his comfort, just like you do for yourself. Even the people against whom you bear a grudge, my friends. So we're called to a level of excellence that surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And this is the reason the words of Christ are so challenging and many people decide to drop out at this point and say, if that's the case, pastor, you stay with your Jesus, I'm going to go live my own life, only to face shipwreck a few months down the road. I have seen this over and over again. Some of them do come back when they are at the end of the rope and they realize the foolishness of their ways and they desire to come back. And when they do, what we do is we embrace them right back and we say, you are back into my life. Let me give you a place of honor again. Let me give you the best seat in the house because I've been waiting for you and been praying for you. Now, the fourth rhetorical question here that Jesus presents deals the final blow to the hypocrisy of his listeners. Jesus compares them with the Gentiles now. Uh, and the word he uses here is the same word for, for pagans. In other words, he's saying, you are just like the pagans. And he says this, do not even the Gentiles do the same, referring back to the fake greeting, the fake pleasantries. And say, well, the pagans do the same thing. So what's new? His point is, subjects of the kingdom of heaven are supposed to be distinct from the rest of the world. That's not how we operate. We don't operate by that hypocritical system. That's what it means to be salt and light, to operate by a higher standard of conflict resolution, which means we don't love like the world does. How do non-members of the kingdom of heaven love? Here's their philosophy. Be kind to your own kind and shame everybody else who disagrees with you. That's the philosophy of the world. Be kind to your own kind and shame everybody else who disagrees with you, specifically if they're Christians. In our society, people who don't buy the popular narrative of victimhood, for example, you know, everybody else is out to get me. I'm a victim of everybody else. I'm a victim of circumstances. I'm not a perpetrator. I'm a victim. So if we don't buy that popular narrative, we are slandered and ignored. And now there's a new term for this called canceled. And ironically, we are accused of hate. That's the substandard. We display spiritual virtue at the highest level by rising above all of that. We confront sinful behavior, yes, but we extend kindness to the sinner. Even when the sinner hurts us profoundly, we extend kindness to them. Why? Because of a simple principle here in the Bible. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Uh, sinners are enemies of God by nature. That's who we were. The Bible says we were enemies of God before we came to Christ. So if, we wanna, if we're interested in being Christ-like, imitating Christ, or operating by His standard, guess what, church? We are to love sinners because Jesus is a friend of sinners. The people who speak evil of you, the people who want nothing more than to destroy your faith, to close your doors, and to shame you and to call you all kinds of names, we're to love them. We're to extend kindness to them. And the standard is even more applicable when we're talking about people in our own church, in our own family. So friend, anyone, if you're listening to this, if you're watching this, anybody here, if you're holding a grudge against someone here, grow up and take care of it now. Pray before the Lord and pray for that person and say, Lord, please change my heart. I need to mature. I need to be more like Christ and I need to forgive that person in my heart and honor that person like I honor myself because that is what the Bible says. So after identifying the assumption in the corrupt teaching, 
offering to correction and presenting to reason, Jesus now gives the conclusion in verse 48. And what a great way to conclude this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. You are to be perfect, just as your Heavenly Father is perfect. And he closes this portion of the Sermon on the Mount with a shocking statement, an impossible demand. Now you're thinking, wait a minute, that, that, that leaves us out. Yes, I don't know about you, but that leaves me out. Be perfect because my father is perfect? I don't measure up. I can't live by that standard. And that's exactly the point. We need divine intervention for that. Sinlessness is required to enter the kingdom of heaven, and that's what the point is here. And thus, sin is the great equalizer of the human race. And by the way, church, there's only one race. Have you noticed this? The Bible only speaks of race, and there's no qualifiers of race other than human. And the great equalizer in the human race is Romans 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, he is telling his listeners here, you are as unqualified to make it to heaven as the tax collectors, as the Gentiles, and everyone else who you consider an enemy. And church, that is true for us as well. Likewise, you and I are as unqualified to enter the kingdom of heaven as the rioters, as the looters, as the murderers, as the corrupt politicians and everybody else, because we are not perfect. And therefore, this is how Jesus opens up their heart to present himself as the majestic Savior, to say, now I'm here, now you need a Savior, and I am he who is speaking with you. And that's why he says, you are to be perfect because your heavenly Father is perfect. So church, we need to understand this. From the moment of our conception, we are at war with the holy God who demands perfection in order to take us to heaven. And understanding this reality about the human predicament is crucial for meeting our greatest need. And we need to understand our greatest need is reconciliation with God. That is the problem of humankind. We need to understand this human condition. Now, we must address this problem before we address person-to-person reconciliation Because of the simple rationale, what good would it do? How tragic would it be for you to be at peace with your neighbors or even with your enemies and remain in a constant state of war with God? And unless you come to Jesus Christ, my friend, you will remain an enemy of God. So Jesus, therefore, prepares the hearts of his listeners to receive him as the agent of reconciliation between God and man because he is the God-man. And he offers, therefore, imperfect sinners the condition for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Now, again, this is why Jesus is the greatest preacher who ever lived, whoever walked the earth. In verse 20, he says, your righteousness is insufficient. Your righteousness is deficient unless you have a surpassing righteousness. Other than that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not make it to the kingdom of heaven. And he closes this session of the Sermon on the Mount saying, well, not only that, but you're supposed to be perfect. And then he goes on in the next few uh, verses here in the entire book of Matthew to present himself as the majestic savior as the king who saves and he offers the righteousness not based on performance but the righteousness that is by faith according to romans 9 verse 30 paul talks about this interest into the kingdom of heaven is available only by the righteousness that is by faith not by performance and according to this righteousness that is by faith imperfect people can be admitted into heaven on his merit not on anything we can do but on his merit by grace through faith And that's the conclusion of this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. What a great way to conclude this homily here. Words of life. Words that are challenging, but they cut our hearts to the bone to expose our sinfulness and to offer the healing, just like a skilled physician would do. And today, my friend, God gives you the opportunity to be reconciled with Him. 
to end the greatest conflict that plagues the human race, your greatest need. And before you need a job, before you need physical healing, social justice, or comfort, or your rights asserted, what you need is peace with your Creator. That's your greatest need, according to the Word of God. And God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, the Bible says, Christ died for us, Romans 5, verse 8. And if you turn to Jesus in faith and away from your sin, and you embrace Him as your Savior, He will clothe you with the righteousness needed to make it to heaven. He will cover you with His perfection, because you're not perfect. Perfection is required to get to heaven, and Jesus offers his perfection by covering you with his perfection. That can only be obtained by grace through faith. He'll give you eternal life, a living hope, and not only that, according to Ephesians 1 verse 3, he will give you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, meaning a new position in Christ. No longer an enemy, but now a son and daughter. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for another opportunity to open the word of God and just drink from the fountain of perfect wisdom, Lord. How different the standard of the world is, Lord. The standard that praises vindictiveness, vengefulness, and revenge, and uh, vendettas, Lord, and enmity. But when we look at the standard of God, Lord, we are called upon to be humble, to forgive others, to love others as we love ourselves, to love our neighbor. Not only that, but to love our enemies, people who consider us enemies, Lord. And we want to live by that standard, Lord. We, we recognize that this is not easy. In fact, it's impossible to do outside of intervention from you, Lord. So, Father, we pray for our people of Grace Baptist Church. Lord, raise us up here, an army of faithful followers of Christ who live by this standard here, Lord, who love one another, who forgive one another, who hold no grudges against one another, who live by the most excellent level of spiritual virtue, Lord, because that's what you require of us, people who live by biblical standards, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Join us today in spreading the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth with Grace.